This is Michael Easley in Context. We seem to think that there's a measuring line that we're supposed to hit, but as soon as you hit it, it moves. And so, and therein lies this odd, odd game or dance that we do trying to measure up. And, and one of the first things I think we need to do is really figure out what our expectations are, what lenses we're looking through. As a believer, am I looking through God's expectations for me or from what the world has defined for me? And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. We're talking today on In Context to Kay Wyma, the mother of five children. You got us beat. Sorry, we always have four. I feel like I'm lazy. <clears throat> Three of your children and there, follow... And therein lies the comparison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Three of your kids fall in the tween, teen category still. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Your bio really? says you're a recovering yeah. enabler, procrastinator, controller, grammar, hacker. I love it. And calendar challenged, among other things. I loved reading some of your, uh, your blogs and preface to your newest book, some of your book about... Uh, doing big TV interviews, then jumping in a van to go sit in a line and pick up your kids at school. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's the story of my life. Life goes on, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, life goes on. And that's the good part of life, really. (laughs) Well, let's talk about, first of all, I know it's old news for a lot of your followers, but some who may not know you, your first book, Cleaning House, A Mom's 12-Month Experiment to Rid Her Home of Youth Entitlement. A, did you ever anticipate, you know, when you're going through this, I'm going to write a book and share my story and encourage people with this whole thing? No, I really didn't. I kind of went down that road kicking and screaming Mm -hmm. because I was an investment banker in a former life, and I always kind of thought I would go back to that. However, the fact that I cannot complete a fifth grade math assignment should should have <laughs> opened my eyes to the fact that I wouldn't be in investment banking anymore, but <laughs> one can hope. <laughs> well, investment bankers probably couldn't do well with Common Core either, but we'll leave that alone. So you decided to write this book. You come into it reluctantly because? Well, because my, um, my kids at that point, the oldest was a teenager. And uh, I was nervous, quite frankly. You know, I, I loved MOPS, which is a wonderful ministry for moms of young children. Um, they have people come in and tell you, this is going to happen, this is regular, this is normal, and, and here are red flags. And I needed that for my teenagers as I sat at the cusp of that. And that's when I started a blog. I was some friends who were equally in a precarious spot, wondering what's normal and what's not. And I got great people to just give us advice. And along the road is, is how Cleaning House came out, because I got frustrated with my kids one day when I felt like they were looking at me to do everything for them. And they were like looking to the state to serve them. And I realized I was the state and then that I was grooming socialism and I don't even believe in socialism. And, and that was that. And I thought it would be funny if I blogged about that. And then I had a couple of publishers wanted to publish a book from it. And, mm-hmm. and so that's why I just didn't really expect it. I didn't know that I was a writer. I enjoy it though. I love it. Well, you've got an act for it. It's fun to read your stuff. Um, when, when you, Think about entitlement. Now, of course, Cindy and I lived in Dallas for uh, the area for 13 years. And even compared to other places we live, Dallas is the epicenter of entitlement and wealth and materialism. So you're really going upstream. Uh, I guess so. At what age did your children's friends have iPhones? Really? It starts in about, probably starts with kindergarten here. Crazy. Um, It starts early. 
and it's very regular and normal, so very few people think about it here. And I know it is the epicenter. I have so many friends that come in, and they say that we don't really realize it. And in the midst of all of that, it might be, but gosh, the people are so great, you know? Oh, no and question. Yeah, no question. The pressures that we live under that we don't even realize we live under, and they sap the joy out of your life. Mm. The entitlement for sure saps the joy. And parents do it because they love their kids, you know? They, they want life to, quote, go well for them. And we're duped into thinking that life goes well if you prepare the road ahead of them and then walk it for them. And on the other side of that, people are crippled, but it's very hard to see it because everyone's racing around trying to keep up and beat the people that are next to them for now, their kids' sake. Now, Kate, and, I know a little of your family. I know a little of your history. Uh, you did not grow up you know, in, in a tough situation. How did you compare your entitlement, is it even fair to use that word, with your children? And let's generalize my kids too. This current crop of teens, what was the difference? That's such a great question, because I did grow up comfortably. Um, At the same time, my dad was very clear to tell us that though we may be comfortable today, that's not something to expect. And so there was very much a mantra of hard work. We weren't allowed to just skate by. And if you're going to do a job, you should do it well. And I don't think he was afraid of failure either to let us fall. And I don't think people were really as afraid of that even then as they are now. And there certainly wasn't a trend to bubble wrap your children either. We were allowed, you know, we would leave the house in the morning and come back at night. When you look at um, the, the cultural shifts, and, and again, I, I think some neuroscience is going on here too. I, I use the analogy that our parents made do with what we had. They imperceptibly and intrinsically wanted you and me to have it better than they did. So you go to college, you get a good job, you save, you live under your income, you, you know, all the things that were handed to us. And there almost seems to be a unintended consequences that they did well with what they had. They wanted us to have it better. What did we, without intentionality, give to our kids? Well, and I love that you brought that up because the term better, I want my kids to have it better that phrase really started after the Great Depression, and people didn't have the opportunity to have an education. And so when they were working so hard, it really was to give their kids the opportunity to be educated so that they could, quote, have it better than they did. And I think we've inserted in that have it better. Somehow in our minds, we've decided that is financial success, mm-hmm. you know, that, that that is what better is. And on the other side of that kind of better, oh, if I pave the road, which they've changed the term from helicopter parenting to snowplow parenting, because it's not just hovering. (laughs) People are getting in the trenches and doing the work for their children. And, I mean, it's like, see also college applications, you know. I have a kid who's 18 sitting at that cusp right now, knowing full well that his peers have been to advisors on how to do their college application, even to the point of writing their essays for them. And all Mm. these grooming techniques that we use, rather than just letting them live. And and you kind of sit there and want to say, well, who says that's how you have to do that? I used to use an illustration, and I forget the author, who talked about this parent calling Princeton and Harvard and Yale, and they wanted to know what was the best pre-K and kindergarten program for their child to get into one of these schools. And the question should have been appalling enough. What was really appalling was that the universities had an answer. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure on a little kid and on a parent. 
as if that's what makes them. And in the whole process, and what I saw in our house that, gosh, I I started apologizing fast. I would never Mm. have been, no one I know would have considered me a helicopter person because I am entirely too flaky. I, I am unorganized and I just can't keep up with anything. But when I started putting, legitimately putting these household tasks on their plate, I realized what I was doing to them when I didn't put it on their plate. Mm-hmm. It, because when you don't do it, even though I might be saying to them, you can do anything you put your mind to, you know, you, I really believe in you. When I don't believe in them and when I don't put the task on their plate, they hear the loud implied message, which I'm convinced is all they hear anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you can't do it or I can do it better, which really is not what I think. And it floored me <laughs> how, how I was not equipping and training them. Even through scripture, I, I loved the verse, you know, train up a child in the way they should go. And as they get old, they won't depart from it. And in my mind, somehow I made that scripture like, oh, okay, if we read scripture to them and if, if they learn it, then they're good to go. And I sort of forgot about the training aspect, you know, that that involves showing them how to do something and then standing off at the side while they try, then getting out of the way so they do it themselves. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. really how all-encompassing that is. And then that actually is a gift, but it sure does take your breath away. And it is countercultural. Let's switch a little bit, although we're really not switching, but your your new book, which I love, it oh. really is dealing with, you know, is it too simple to talk about contentment as the key word? Yeah, it's a big word. When the publisher, they were very nice to come back and, and say, we'd love for you to write something else. And I quickly reminded them I'm not a writer. And <laughs> they were like, no, we want something. And we talked about what the topic is, where um, I've had such wonderful opportunities to speak different places. And I told them, you know, in the room, wherever I am, for sure, the biggest issue is this competitiveness that's mm-hmm. just bizarre, especially in parenting, competitive parenting. Who came up with that? It's like an <laughs> Olympic sport, you know? And, um, and and then I just saying at the core of all of that is comparison. I mean, that's really what it is, that we just cannot stop comparing ourselves to each other pretty much from the minute we get up. And that was like, yeah, yeah, do that. And Boy, did that open a can of worms. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Really, I'm not, I'm not joking. It has been I can imagine. A, a really challenging road to embark on this topic. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, and I'm sure you cite this in the book. He says, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means and also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I find it striking. You know, we all, we like to look back on our past and go, yeah, we got along with a little when, you know, when mom and dad were early in their career or when we were early in marriage. Now we have a lot. Yes, but we don't like to flip it. And at this point, Paul had flipped it. Paul had had a lot. Now he's in and out of prison. He's living on a little. He's being filled with going hungry um, and suffering. So let's talk a little bit about that from not only your book, but just your experience. How do we start to instill this idea of contentment, which in Greek means enough? The answer to that topic, I can do all things through Christ who lives in me, which is exactly what you said. And that seems like a term that's so heady. Like, mm-hmm. how do you really tap into that? You know, how does that work? 
because for me, that's one where I'd go, oh, that sounds so lovely. And how does that work? And you go back to where the gentleman that or whoever was surrounding him and said, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love others as you love yourself, and later as I loved you. And it's like, therein lies the secret sauce, love others. Well, if you really are loving God and you are loving others, then your eyes are not on yourself. The entitlement issue, what's wrong with the entitlement issue? Narcissism, for sure, because it's me, 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 me. And the same with comparison, whether you're comparing yourself thinking you're better than somebody else, or you're comparing yourself because you're really not as good, which is really where I think people sit, you know, on the short end of the stick of comparison. Um, Either way, your eyes are on yourself. And I feel like the Lord is saying, do you want to know the secret sauce of life? It is to keep your eyes off of yourself. I'm telling you this because I love you, you know, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. I love you and I want you to be happy. And your happiness is really found in me. So look at me. And and, and as I started peeling back the layers on this thing, which Really, you think you're looking at one, and you just slightly peel it back, and there's a thousand more. It was hard to not go back to the garden, because that's where it started. You know, comparison was the tool that was used for the fall. You've Mm -hmm. got something. you're, You're fine, because they don't even realize they have no clothes on. They're content, you know, and perfect provision, even with the tree standing there that was out of bounds. You can't touch that. Until someone comes and says, by the way, that thing over there, it has everything you need. Mm-hmm. You aren't complete, but you would be if you had that. And there goes the comparison, and their eyes start to look at them. I don't have something that I should have, and they go for it. And I feel like that's been our problem from that point on. And the, the part that surprises me is, is the, how pervasive it is even in my own mind. I can get up in the morning and simply open my drawer and see a pair of pants I might have worn before I, you know, had that fifth child that still I have never worn since that date, <laughs> and and somehow decide that I should be in those pants, and I'm sort of a less of myself because I, I'm not that, I'm not wearing those like I should be wearing, and therein, it's got me, you mm. know, there goes the trap, and all of a sudden I see lots of my imperfections, which really is just me thinking about me, and and I just don't think there's any contentment in that. So you're in Dallas. I'm in Brentwood. Folks are listening to this later, different parts of the, the country. And, and we've all got our spheres, whether it's what I used to wear, what I drive, what I used to drive. My friend who got a new thing that he or she drives, the bigger, better, newer, more penchant. Give us some index, Kay. How do we think about contentment? Not that possessions or growth are bad, but how are we content? Right in the circumstance we find ourselves? One is gratitude. You know, it's like, where am I looking? I think about it like right now I'm holding a pair of readers, you know, because I can no longer see. (laughs) And I think about those lenses, and it's like, what lenses am I looking through when I look at life? Am I looking through these lenses of what I expect? Because expectations play a major role in this whole comparison thing. There's a theory of the the U-shaped curve of life is a theory that really spans across societal norms. It doesn't hit any socioeconomic sphere. Like, it's just a part of life in everywhere region of the world, which says that at a certain point in life, like, if you you have the beginning of life and the end of life, and you start out life fairly content and happy, and then about your 20s to 30s, it starts to dip down, and it stays, and it continues to go lower in your 30s and 40s and 50s, and then it goes back up in the 60s, 70s, 80s. 
because, and they don't know why, you know, except that in that major dip down that there's a load of unmet expectations. You have Mm. this idea of the way that things are supposed to be and, and it's expectations on yourself. This is how I'm supposed to be. And either I'm, I'm, you know, there's a measuring mark on the line, either I'm there, which really never happens, or I'm above or below. And no matter where you are, you have this mark that you think you're supposed to reach in whoever whoever said that, because it could vary in whatever region of the world you live or socioeconomic sphere that you're in, you know, because it's different for everybody. Yet we seem to think that there's a measuring line that we're supposed to hit. But as soon as you hit it, it moves. And so and therein lies this odd odd game or dance that we do trying to measure up. And and one of the first things I think we need to do is really figure out what our expectations are, what lenses we're looking through. As a believer, am I looking through God's expectations for me or from what the world has defined for me? And I, I think that's a big part of the equation. And I think gratitude is is enormous to be able to focus not on what I don't have, but what on I what I mm-hmm. do have, you know, and I tell my kids that all the time, especially when words like not fair enter the picture. Could we for a minute look at the good stuff that is going on, which may be where Paul sat with his eyes on Jesus, being able to say, I'm good because I trust him and I trust his provision. Mm-hmm. Can I see the provision mm-hmm. in the midst of all of what I would see as lacking? And I think that's I think a lot of our contentment comes along the lines of kind of a reboot of sorts. When you think of our, our current entitlement culture, as, as you've written in your first book, Cleaning House, and you think of the pervasive nature of kids and technology, it's exploded. And I love yeah. the fact that the software and the applications are written now for preteens so there's almost this never-ending uh, flow of comparison that comes at them, what they're doing to themselves on with, with Instagram and the Snapchat and some of the flirting sites where they show pictures of themselves. It's astonishing. It's all about comparison. Yeah, it is. And I think that is actually hard for us to relate to. We can feel it a little bit, but it is. It's the likes, the shares. There are so many opportunities to compare yourself that you wonder why the weight of depression is so high. It really is at an all-time high. In the United States, suicide is at an epidemic rate, which is, you know, staggering. You know, the CDC says that that doesn't even touch this trend to self-harm. You know, why are people so unhappy? And does social media play a role? It's hard to think that it wouldn't because, again, it allows me to pretty much think about myself all day, every day. I could easily go a whole day without a break from myself, (laughs) which is not going to lead us to a place of contentment. There's an interesting, another, since you like reading, there's another interesting article. It was a study that was done by some Harvard guys. I think Kiplinger is the name of who did it. Because, you know, right now one of the very popular topics is mindfulness, which people tend to take to yoga, you know, because it's this concept of where your mind is, you know, stilling your mind and what you're thinking about. They did a study on our propensity, human beings, to have wandering thoughts. And 49.6% of our day is spent with our thoughts wandering. And it could be in all kinds of capacities, but when our thoughts wander, we tend to not be happy, which is the results that they they came up with. And Mm. our, our minds tend to wander when we're on the computer, when we're in conversation, interestingly enough. And when we wander... 
we're going towards all these things that we think we should have or that we should be doing as even someone's talking to us. Like, how do I compare to them? And this concept of mindfulness is, is so powerful and compelling. If I'm on my phone looking at Facebook, it's hard to peruse through that Mm-hmm. and come out unscathed. You know, just... Well, and there have been some studies recently about uh, the level of depression and how much time a person spends on Facebook and Twitter mm-hmm. and Instagram. You know, it's almost corollary. It's almost yeah. like, you know, if you spend 10 minutes on this three times a day, that should be your allocation. <laughs> it's all you really it's need. fascinating, <laughs> isn't it? I will say for me, even knowing what I, what I do and kind of being a little bit aware that I'm going to be tripped up in this stuff, it floors me at how I could see for me today with an 18-year-old, it's college acceptances. And, and I sit there and I'm like, oh, that's so neat they got into Stanford. And I'm like, why didn't we get into Stanford? <laughs> Did he even, has he finished his applications? Oh, my gosh, there is not a college for everybody. You know, well, and there I go. <laughs> back to your earlier trending, you know, getting close to 60, uh, it, it's a fun place to be. I talked to my peers and it's like, I got nothing to prove anymore. <laughs> yes. Isn't that interesting? You, you know, in your 30s it's and 40s, true. you're trying to, you know, you're proving, you're comparing that you go back to high school reunions. If you went to those things, the 10th, the 20th, the 25th, whatever, at some point, it's like mm, the, the, the time running out's really quick. So what am I doing and who am I? My identity's in Christ, not in what I wear, or what I drive or how big the thing I own might be. How do we get free from this comparison trap? I think a big part is a mental reboot. I think another thing is to be able to see the people that are around you rather than see them as com- as a competitor, you know, a competitor, but actually see them beyond the moment. There's an idea of, of something called the glimpse where you see these things and in the moment you instantly compare yourself to all this kind of stuff, probably going down a road that I don't compare favorably into all of this rather than seeing the people because you just don't know. I, I think we see these people and don't realize that they are people with a lot of other stuff going on in Mm -hmm. their life. And Mm -hmm. it's the idea, if you can take comparison and take out an R and an I out of that word and switch in an S and an I, you can go from comparison to compassion. And I, to me, how do we get past this? A lot less us and a lot more others. If I can be comfortable in myself and my own skin to be able to look at something besides me, I can see these people around me who are dying in the midst of it too because they are bumping up against all this stuff and they equally are unhappy, in discontent, trying and searching to find the thing, which it does. It leads back to our kids, you know, if that's the realm that you're in. If you're in the business world, can you really walk into a business meeting and trade business cards and be comfortable that you're a vice president instead of a senior vice president or CEO or maybe think that the other people at that table might be comparing themselves to everyone else and meet them in the middle of that and offer some encouragement? I got doses of it from my kids, you know. The lessons that I really learned through this are from my children. Mm -hmm. Um, Just finding contentment in, number one, actually genuinely being happy for somebody else. Letting someone else's better grade be okay. One of my daughters plays volleyball, and she was given the role of setter on their team, which 
grieved her because she's mediocre athletic, you know, just athleticism. She's a great volleyball player because she has good hands. And so her coach put her a setter. Well, the setter has to touch the ball every single point, but the setter never wins the point. Mm -hmm. The setter is always setting somebody else up to win. Mm -hmm. And when she got in the car that day and was upset about it, and um, for so many reasons, including the fact that she would never win a point, it dawned on her how happy she is when she wins a point and that her entire essence of being on that team would be setting people up to win points. And it filled her tank. Mm. I watched it filled her tank. And then I watched her fill everyone else's tank. And there goes the counterintuitive nature of what our Lord tells us to do. Mm -hmm. Do this so that it will go well for you. By the way, it may not look like you not winning the point is actually what's going to offer the most satisfaction but it does. Watching the uh, Don and Sue Wills family a little bit, uh, some up close and some at a distance, um, I think your parents did well. Um, you and your siblings uh, all have that sense of making others more and yourself less. K.Y. Wyman, thanks for your latest contribution. I'm happy for you. Sort of, not really. Love that. Finding contentment in a culture of comparison. Thanks for being on In Context. Thank you so much for having me. If you have questions or comments, please let us know at michaelincontext.com.